Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. In 1941, Universal Pictures, already having achieved great success in 1931 with Dracula and Frankenstein, introduced audiences everywhere to yet another pop culture icon in The Wolfman. Starring Lon Chaney Jr. as Lawrence Larry Talbot, a man who returns to his ancestral home following the death of his brother, only to end up bitten by a werewolf. Today on Filmgasm, I talk about the movie that started the werewolf subgenre and paved the way for some of the greatest horror films of all time. Happy Wednesday, wolfmen and wolfwomen. This is Filmgasm, the littlest horror movie podcast where I rant and rave about the best and worst that horror films have to offer. My name is Connor Azagari, lifelong film buff and amateur werewolf hunter, here to give you the stone-cold deets on some classic horror. Check out the website, filmgasm.com, for daily reviews and articles, as well as the newest trailers. In just a few weeks, I'll be joined by my partner Austin Johnson, the cash to my tango, to deliver episode 15, our third Weird Shit Wednesday where instead of a horror flick, we dive into an iconic filmmaker's career or a legendary Hollywood scandal. With this one, it's a bit of both, as we'll be covering the filming of the 1956 John Wayne critical disaster, The Conqueror, in which the whitest actor who ever lived starred as Genghis Khan. The Conqueror was filmed around an irradiated nuclear weapons testing site, and nearly half the cast and crew had cancer by 1980, with 46 people eventually dying from it. In addition to discussing John Wayne's possible death by film set, we'll dissect Duke's career through 13 films that we believe best represent him as an actor. Stay tuned for that one on Wednesday, June 12th. Now, I'm recording this one on Saturday, May 25th, super early, because I'll be out of the country all next week. I wanted to get this one in the can before I left so I can just relax on my vacation. But that doesn't mean this episode will be any less than what I usually provide. With that, here's a brief but fascinating rewind. This is the only one I got for you, but it's a doozy. For the past few years, there's been a story circulating online that Blondie lead singer Debbie Harry narrowly escaped the clutches of serial killer Ted Bundy back in 1972. Bundy was, of course, the subject of Filmgasm episode 11, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. This is from an article on InterviewMagazine.com about the alleged escape. In 1972, when hitchhiking didn't always lead to certain death, Blondie frontwoman Debbie Harry climbed into a stranger's car on New York's Avenue C in the East Village after failing to hail a cab. Behind the wheel was a well-dressed man with gorgeous, curly, dark hair. Her original account of the potentially fatal event was detailed in a newspaper published in 1989. This was back in the early 70s, she said. I wasn't even in a band then. I was trying to get across town to an after-hours club. A little white car pulls up, and the guy offers me a ride, so I just continued to try to flag a cab down. But he was very persistent, and he asked where I was going. It was only a couple blocks away, and he said, well, I'll give you a ride. I got in the car, and it was summertime, and the windows were all rolled up except about an inch and a half at the top. So I was sitting there, and he wasn't really talking to me. Automatically, I sort of reached to roll down the window, and I realized there was no door handle, no window crank, no nothing. The inside of the car was totally stripped down. She also noticed that there was a hole where the radio and glove compartment should be. She felt unsafe and decided she had to get out, and fast. To escape, she thrust her arm out of the window and opened it up from the outside. As soon as he saw that, she said, he tried to turn the corner really fast, and I spun out of the car and landed in the middle of the street. 
Harry had only reached Avenue A, two avenues over. Later, she realized that she had been in the back seat of serial killer Ted Bundy's car, or so she thought. It was right after his execution that I read about him, she said. I hadn't thought about that incident in years. The whole description of how he operated and what he looked like and the kind of car he drove and the time frame he was doing that in that area of the country fit exactly. I, I said, my God, it was him. End quote. Okay, so when I first heard this, I couldn't believe it. What a terrifying situation to be in and what a narrow escape. Holy shit. However, it has since been debunked. Bundy was never known to be in New York, and he wasn't abducting or killing women until at least 1974. Harry herself even admits that the car she was picked up in didn't match Bundy's Volkswagen, which later went on display at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum. So, I don't want to say it's disappointing that Debbie Harry wasn't abducted by Bundy, but it's a shame the story's likely bogus. You know, it was an interesting American urban legend that... I told a bunch of people, and now I'm a little embarrassed that it's fake, so i got to do some retractions. That's it for the rewind. Now, let's sink our fangs into The Wolfman. The Wolfman was released in 1941 by Universal Pictures as part of its interconnected shared universe with 1931's Dracula and Frankenstein. These three monsters would battle it out quite frequently in sequels way before Marvel Comics made cinematic universes the norm in Hollywood. It only came about because Universal's first attempt at a werewolf-themed movie failed with 1935's Werewolf of London. Thankfully, their second attempt was a rousing success. The Wolfman has an IMDb score of 7.4 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 94%. And it earns that score. The film stars breakout star Lon Chaney Jr., son of legendary horror actor Lon Chaney, who famously starred as the Phantom of the Opera in the 1925 silent horror film of the same name. Future filmgasm. I had not seen that. I would love to. Lon Chaney Jr. would play Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman, in five films total. 1941's The Wolfman, 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, 1944's House of Frankenstein, 1945's House of Dracula, and finally in 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. More on all of these sequels later on. The Wolfman would be the role that Chaney Jr. would be known for for the rest of his life. He died in 1973 of liver failure at 67 years old. The film also co-stars four-time Oscar nominee Claude Rains as Sir John Talbot, Larry's father. Rains was famous in horror for his role as the Invisible Man in the 1933 Universal horror flick of the same name. Rains was nominated for his roles in 1939's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, 1942's Casablanca, 1944's Mr. Skeffington, and 1946's Notorious. Reigns would die in 1967 of an intestinal hemorrhage at the age of 77. Also in the cast is Dracula himself, Bela Lugosi, who plays Bela the Gypsy, the original werewolf who bites Larry. Lugosi was a Hungarian stage actor who became famous for playing Count Dracula, but never quite broke through with anything else. He had a famous rivalry with fellow horror actor Boris Karloff, and in the last years of his life, Lugosi found paycheck gigs with legendarily bad filmmaker Edward D. Wood Jr., appearing in films like Glenn or Glenda, Bride of the Monster, and his brief final appearance in Plan 9 from Outer Space. This period of Lugosi's life was portrayed quite beautifully in the 1994 biopic Ed Wood, where Lugosi is played by Martin Landau, who won an Oscar for his performance. Lugosi died in 1956 of a heart attack at the age of 73. 
And I do want to do a Weird Shit Wednesday on the careers of Lon Chaney Jr., Bela Lugosi, and Boris Karloff. I think that all three of them are fascinating men who never really escaped the horror typecast, and I would love to just dive into their careers. So the story of the Wolfman is quite simple, and the film itself only clocks in at an hour and ten minutes. Larry Talbot comes home to reunite with his estranged father after the death of his brother. The Talbot family is exceedingly wealthy and powerful, and the Talbot name holds weight in the village. Sir John Talbot, his father, wants Larry to inherit the estate and continue the legacy. In the village, Larry falls in love with Gwen Conliffe, played by Evelyn Ankers, who he learns is already engaged, but she tells him that during the date she's already accepted from him, so that's a bit sketchy. But this plot thread isn't all that important. It doesn't really come up that much. While on a walk in the woods with Gwen and Gwen's friend Jenny, Larry is attacked and bitten by a wolf that kills Jenny. Larry beats the wolf to death with a walking stick with a silver wolf head topper. The next day, Larry's wound has vanished, and in place of a wolf's body, Bella the Gypsy's body is lying next to Jenny's. Confused and distraught, Larry goes to Maleva, a gypsy woman who knows the mystic arts. She informs Larry that he will become a werewolf next and that the only way to kill a werewolf is with a silver bullet, a silver knife, or a stick with a silver handle. Larry does indeed transform and kill someone. When he wakes up the next day and realizes what's happened, he tries to convince his father of what he's become. Sir John doesn't believe him, but Larry gives him the silver-topped walking stick just in case. Later that night, Larry transforms and attacks Gwen Conliffe, but Sir John intervenes and beats the monster to death with the walking stick. As the wolf changes back into dead Larry before his very eyes, Sir John realizes he's murdered his own son. And I personally think that Sir John was bitten. It's not made clear in the film, but the attack was pretty bad, and I I think Sir John was bit by the werewolf. But we never get any follow-up on that thread. But that's the whole movie. It's a classic because it's so simple, and because Lon Chaney Jr. was such a sympathetic, tragic hero-slash-villain. Talbot wasn't a soulless vampire or a man-made freak of science. He was just a guy who was inflicted with a terrible disease that consumed him against his will. You liked him. He was charming. And this is a trope that influenced thousands of werewolf movies later on and to this day. You know, the werewolf is the most tragic of the monsters because it's it's something that's forced upon you. It's You have no control over what happens when you transform, and it's terrible. So let's talk about sequels and remakes. The first sequel was 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, in which Larry Talbot is accidentally brought back to life by grave robbers who remove the wolfbane from his grave while they're fishing for jewels. I guess that keeps the werewolf dead. As the film goes on, Talbot flees from an angry mob into Frankenstein's castle, where he discovers Frankenstein's monster trapped in ice. He chisels the monster out in hopes that he might know where to find the doctor's notes, as Talbot thinks Dr. Frankenstein might be able to help him. Bela Lugosi plays the monster, by the way. Inevitably, the two monsters battle it out. The film has an IMDb score of 6.6 and a tragically bad Rotten Tomatoes score of 25%. Next was 1944's House of Frankenstein, where a scientist, played by Boris Karloff and his hunchback, discovered the preserved bodies of both the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster, frozen in the ruins of Castle Frankenstein. Literally the same thing they did in the last movie. Also, Dracula's in this one, played by John Carradine. Talbot, as the Wolfman, ends up shot to death by a silver bullet. The film has an IMDb score of 6.3, 
and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 55%. So better, but not great. Next was 1945's House of Dracula, where Talbot is still alive somehow. I guess this is never explained. And he's seeking a cure for his affliction. John Carradine once again plays Dracula, who is also seeking a cure for his vampirism. And Glenn Strange portrays Frankenstein's monster for the first time. Inevitably, things go wrong. Dracula remains evil and tries to turn a bunch of people. Talbot sacrifices himself to trap Frankenstein's monster in a burning castle, and Dracula's coffin gets dragged into the sunlight with him in it, where he's destroyed. The film has an IMDb score of 5.9 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 56%. Finally, Lon Chaney Jr.'s final portrayal of the Wolfman was in 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, one of the funniest and most clever comedies of the 20th century. The film stars comedic duo Bud Abbott and Lou Costello as Chick and Wilbur, two hapless freight handlers who are hired to transport the supposed bodies of Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi in his last outing as the Count, and Frankenstein's monster, once again played by Glenn Strange. They get a call from Larry Talbot, warning them not to open the boxes. Dracula decides to steal Wilbur, Lou Costello, his brain, and put the brain into the monster so he can make him strong again and subservient. Larry Talbot shows up to help Wilbur and Chick stop the Count's evil plan, but of course, he transforms and the Wolfman gets in the way and battles it out with Dracula. The film ends with Chick and Wilbur running into the Invisible Man, setting up a sequel. I absolutely love this movie. It's a Halloween staple of mine. It's so funny, it's so enjoyable, and it just gets better every time you watch it. It has an IMDb score of 7.6 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 88%. It's a total classic. The Wolfman was remade in 2010 by director Joe Johnston, who also did the first Jumanji and the first Captain America. It starred Benicio Del Toro as Lawrence Talbot, Anthony Hopkins as Sir John Talbot, Emily Blunt as Gwen Conliffe, and Hugo Weaving as Inspector Frederick Aberline, the cop who investigated Jack the Ripper. Not sure why he's in this movie, but, you know, it was cool. It follows roughly the same story, though it adds a lot more action to the third act by having Sir John be a secret werewolf who then fights Del Toro's Wolfman to the death. Sounds like I'm making that up, but I'm not. It was cool at the time, but the more I think about it, it really is kind of a wash. I saw this film once at the movies, and I haven't seen it since. I remember kind of liking it, but I guess I didn't like it that much because I haven't watched it since. The film won an Oscar for Best Makeup, which went to legendary creature creator Rick Baker, the man behind some of the best werewolf transformation scenes in film history. Regrettably, The Wolfman fell off the radar due to poor reception. It has an IMDb score of 5.8 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 35%. Now, as I said earlier, The Wolfman paved the way for the werewolf subgenre. Here are some iconic horror films that would not exist if it hadn't been for The Wolfman. 1981's An American Werewolf in London, the only serious competition for the best werewolf movie ever made. Quite possibly my favorite horror movie. It was written and directed by John Landis. It's about two American backpackers who are traveling through England and are attacked by a werewolf on the moors. One of them is killed, the other survives. This film is known primarily for its incredible werewolf transformation sequence done by Rick Baker, and it still holds up today. And it's because of this film that the best makeup category at the Oscars was created. American Werewolf is in my pantheon of horror films. It's an absolute legendary classic. I love it so much. 
Next up, 1981's The Howling. A reporter travels to a remote mountain retreat that she learns is populated by werewolves. It's directed by Joe Dante of Gremlins fame, and it stars Dee Wallace and Patrick McNee. And honestly, I hate this film. <laughs> I don't really get it. I thought it was really boring. I don't understand the hype, but I had to include it because it is a cult werewolf hit. Next up, 1985's Teen Wolf, starring Michael J. Fox as a high school teen who becomes a werewolf after learning it's a genetic trait in his family. He uses his werewolf agility to get better at basketball. Another one I haven't seen, but it's an 80s cult hit, and I'm sure it's cute. I love Michael J. Fox, so I'll give it a shot one day. 1994's Wolf, starring Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. A publisher is bitten by a werewolf and struggles to maintain his life as he transforms. I guess this is a romantic thriller. And it's another one I haven't seen, but you know me. After you know, If you've heard my Shining podcast, you know I'll watch anything with Jack Nicholson. Next up, 2000's Ginger Snaps, a coming-of-age horror fantasy where two outcast sisters are forced to deal with tragedy when one of them is bitten by a werewolf. The film uses lycanthropy as a metaphor for puberty, as the bitten sister dresses more provocatively and ignores her sister's pleas to save her. It's a dark film, but it's not bad. It's a very smart film. Uh, very bloody, very gory, but uh, yeah, I think it had like two or three sequels. 2002's Dog Soldiers, where a group of soldiers are attacked by a pack of werewolves in the Scottish Highlands. Now, I haven't seen this one either, but this sounds badass. You know, soldiers versus werewolves in the Scottish Highlands. Who wouldn't want to see that? 2003's Underworld, starring Kate Beckinsale as a vampire assassin who is fighting in a war against a werewolf underground army called Lycans. The film began a franchise that is five films strong as of 2016. And Vampires vs. Werewolves is a badass concept. And this series is pretty killer. I've seen four of them. I haven't seen the most recent one. But I think it's a really cool movie. It's co-stars Bill Nighy, Michael Sheen, and Scott Speedman. And it's corny at times, but it's got some of the best werewolf and uh, vampire effects and mythology. It's really entertaining. And finally, 2004's Van Helsing, which was written as a love letter to the original Universal Movie Monsters. It stars Hugh Jackman as monster hunter Van Helsing, who is sent to Transylvania to kill Count Dracula, who is trying to find Frankenstein's monster so he can use his life-giving energy to birth his thousands of vampiric children. It's admittedly a terrible movie, but it's so much fun, and I've loved it since I was a kid. You know, it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's directed by Stephen Summers, who did the Brendan Fraser Mummy and The Mummy Returns, and the first G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra. So he doesn't have a great track record, but all of his movies have a special place in my heart because I watched them when I was a kid, and they're, they're fun, you know? They're just goofy fun. And in the movie, the Wolfman is in Dracula's service, and its mythology is tied nicely into Dracula's. So, those are some of the best werewolf movies that owe a lot to the Wolfman. There's a shit ton of bad ones, too, but I figured I'd focus on the positive. Now, here's some filmgasm facts for the Wolfman. Number one, the film opened just two days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Just put that in perspective. You know, that wasn't that long ago. You know, this movie is almost 80 years old, I think, now, and uh, you forget that you know, World War II was not that far off it's really that that fact made me think number two 
The Wolfman battled a bear in one scene, but unfortunately the bear ran away during filming. <laughs> what few scenes were filmed were put into the theatrical trailer. I love that they just let a bear loose <laughs> and couldn't get it back. Ugh. Number three. According to the documentary on the recent Wolfman DVD collection, the script for The Wolfman was influenced by writer Kurt Siodmak's experiences in Nazi Germany. Siodmak had been living a normal life in Germany only to have it thrown into chaos and find himself on the run when the Nazis took control, just as Larry Talbot finds his normal life thrown into chaos and himself on the run once he is turned into a werewolf. Also, The Wolfman himself can be seen as a metaphor for the Nazis an otherwise good man who is transformed into a vicious killing animal who knows who his next victim will be when he sees the symbol of a pentagram, a star, on them. Now that's interesting. I've never really associated werewolves with Nazis. But I, you know, I suppose if, you know, the writer drove, you know, dug from his own personal experiences, I can see that. It's interesting. I never associated the, when the werewolf, when the wolfman sees who he's, you know, going to kill next, he sees a faded pentagram on their palm and the Nazis to uh, make Jews identify themselves would force them to wear a star on their shoulder. So I suppose, uh, yeah, weird. Number four, the Wolfman is the only universal monster to be played by the same actor in all his 1940s film appearances. Lon Chaney Jr. was very proud of this frequently stating in interviews, quote, he was my baby. It is listed in the film reference book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, which stated that the film still remains the most recognizable and most cherished version of the werewolf myth. And that's it for The Wolfman. Good quote to end on. My final score is a solid eight. I still think this film holds up after nearly 80 years. It's well written, it's well acted, it's solidly paced, and it keeps it simple. Of the original Universal Monster movies, I've seen The Wolfman, Dracula, The Mummy, Frankenstein, and Bride of Frankenstein, and The Wolfman is still hands down my favorite of the bunch. And I hope you got some enjoyment out of it too, and frankly, you know, even though I've already spoiled the whole damn thing, you should go watch it if you haven't already. It's a very good film. Thanks for hanging with me a bit, taking some time out of your day to lock your office door, treat yourself to a middle of the day, hope you don't get caught by your boss, Filmgasm. As always, feel free to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or YouTube, or just listen on the website if that's your thing. Leave a review or a comment, that's always appreciated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us at filmgasm at gmail.com if you've got a recommendation or just want to say keep it up. You can also throw us a fuck you if you're not digging the podcast. We welcome any and all feedback. I'd like to thank my good friends Austin Johnson and Caleb Leger for their ongoing commitment to keeping this tiny machine well-oiled with reviews and articles. I would not want to do this without them in my corner. Stay tuned next week for another journey into the mind of Stephen King. We're doing Carrie, the iconic tale of an abused teenage girl who discovers she has the power to get even. I'll talk about the Brian De Palma original, the 2002 TV movie that not a lot of people know about, and the 2013 remake that came and went. Until then, steer clear of werewolves and always respect the classics. Uh -huh.